0: The Lord has really blessed Grace Fellowship Church. Wow, what an understatement that is. From the four couples that Debbie and I (laughs) were able to start with some 24 years ago to well over 3,000 people on an average weekend Worshiping our, through our four campuses, God has done amazing things. We have been privileged to see his hand move and see his spirit at work. He's truly been good to this church. We've seen thousands of people baptized into Christ. We've seen so many people impacted in our communities. Now don't get me wrong, This church is not perfect. Oh, hear me, far, far from perfect. We we have disagreements, we have staff conflicts, we have intense conflicts at times between members of the church. That's just par for the course. But you know, I've been amazed through the years at how few of those there have been, honestly. Honestly. In fact, it it seems to me at times, as I talk to other pastors of larger churches, and I've got a lot of friends out there that I get to chat with from time to time, it seems to me that God has almost put a hedge of protection, if you will, a protective halo over this church and said, let me show you what I can do, yes, even in the cold Northeast. God has been good to this church. But let me ask you a question that I've been thinking about for some time now. How long will these blessings continue? I mean, it's not unusual for a new church plant to see some growth. But it is very rare for a church to see consistent growth for 20, 25, 30 years or more. That is extremely unusual. So how long will God bless? How much influence does he want us to have? How big does he want the church to become? 5,000 regular attenders? 10,000? 20,000? Let me ask it in another way. How many people does God want ministered to through this church? How many families, broken families, does he want help? How many homeless, hungry, hurting people does he want us to reach out to? How many sick people does he want prayed for? How many souls does God want saved? Some time ago, after one of our services, I was out in the lobby chatting, and I was having a good time talking to a family as far as I could tell, it was grandparents and a little grandson. A little grandson was about four or five years old. It was just kind of cute. He was hanging out with his grandma and grandpa. And as far as I could tell, they were kind of visiting from out of town. But it wasn't their first time here. They had been here a number of times before. Have you ever seen a little kid, just as cute as he could be, but you could tell he had a little mischievous streak in him? Have you ever seen a child like that? You could just kind of see it in his eye, you know? A very, very precocious kid and as we were talking just having a wonderful time the little boy about five years old said I really enjoy this church but I get bored when you talk and I thought his grandmother was gonna die I mean she turned purple when her grandson said that and so I laughed real loud and I said you know what I understand I used to get bored, too, in church when I was your age, and so the grandparents quickly changed the subject, and we moved on talking. But a couple of minutes later, he said, you may get better someday. (laughs) Well, we talked a little longer, and they haven't been back. I don't know why, but my therapist says I'm really making progress, and I just wanted to report that today so you knew But you know what? I think that young boy has it right. Some people may look at a church like Grace after 24 years ago, you've arrived. No, no. I think God looks at us and says, you know what? You can really get better someday. You honestly have potential if you'll just keep leaning into me and relying on my spirit. Every Christ follower ought to have these verses, I believe, etched into his or her soul. Here's a doxology from the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians chapter 3. Here's what it is one of my favorites. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, what words? God is able to blow our minds, in other words, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In other words, there's no limit to what God can do, no limit to how much better we can get if we'll just rely on Him. So as we begin this new series today that I'm calling Church Next, Church Next. Next, I want us to think about what God wants grace fellowship to be. But this is not just about the church, it's about you as an individual. I'm going to be asking you a lot of probing personal questions. I hope it doesn't make you feel too uncomfortable. But hey, if we're going to be in this together, if we're going to be a a, a spiritual family together, we got to get real. I want us to ask some personal questions too, because the church, corporate, is really made up of just us as individuals, right? We're the church. It's not our buildings. It's not our properties. It's not some program that makes us a church. It's the people, us as individuals. So let's ask, what can we become together? One thing I know, unless I'm missing something huge in the Bible, God never intended the church to be a passive audience that gathers together on a weekend and gets entertained and then gets dismissed. Oh, no. The church, as I understand it, is meant to be a powerful army for God that does gather together for inspiration and instruction and encouragement and fellowship, but then goes out, and when they leave wherever they gather, they say, now my mission has really started. This is the mission field to which God has called me. Now, Lord, would you use me for you? And we go forth and claim territory for Christ these classic verses that I hope many of you are very familiar with are found in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, look at this particular next phrase. For our struggle, our struggle, the word there means this intense battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. By the way, that kind of military metaphor, that military language is not unusual. If you've read the New Testament much at all, you know that it is a common image given for what we're involved in. I know it makes some people uncomfortable, this military talk. Please understand, this doesn't mean that we're physically going to take up guns and go capture people, but make no mistake, there is a very real spiritual battle going on. And if we don't understand that, we'll never understand what prayer is for, we'll never understand the struggle that we face day by day and why sometimes it seems like you're walking through mud uphill as you try to serve Christ. But I'll tell you, the hymn writers certainly understood this. Look especially at some of the older hymns, and they're filled with these military images, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. They got it. We're in a battle. A mighty fortress is our God, Luther wrote. And it goes on to talk about that spiritual battle and how intense it is. His truth is marching on, the battle hymn of the Republic says. And so, in this discussion, over the next few weeks, I want us to look at some of the steps that we can take to be church next. God's not done with us yet. In fact, I sometimes sense that he's just getting started. But here's the question. What's the next chapter going to look like? You see, God's writing a great narrative. And he wants you to show up big in the story. But what does that iteration look like? What is this next season? What is it going to be like for you and for us? as a church family. That's what I want us to talk about. One thing I know for sure, it won't be accomplished in our own power. And that's where we begin today in the book of Acts. The first thing God's church must really grapple with is that we can't do the work of God in our own ingenuity and power. It's simply can't be done. The mission is too great. The battle is too intense. There's too much at stake. We don't have it. But when he empowers us, there is no, no force on earth that, that can stop us. Jesus once said, as recorded in Acts 1, 4, and 5, on one occasion while he was eating with them, it says he gave them this command. Here it is. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem. He's talking now. This is the resurrected Christ after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, talking to those disciples that had gathered. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. What was that gift? That gift was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It was the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 33, where God says, one day I'm going to pour out my spirit. One day I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what had been prophesied hundreds of years before was now about to be fulfilled in a unique way. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized With the Holy Spirit. So let's talk for a moment about the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Look, don't run out there and try to do my work on your own. And when God's people try to operate in their own strength, they're always ineffective. There's a brilliant illustration of this, I think, in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel had been released from Egyptian captivity, you remember they came right up to the edge of the promised land and they spied it out. And you remember how discouraged they were. They said, those people are like giants. We're like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to them. And their cities are well fortified and they're so well armed, there's no way we can do this. And God's anger was actually kindled against them. And he said... Because of your lack of faith, you will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Those over 20 will die until finally this younger, new generation, my next iteration of what I'm going to do, the next chapter I'm going to write, the next season I have for you will be to take the promised land and you will do it relying on me. But do you remember what happened the very next day? After hearing that, The people came back and said, oh, no, Moses, we had it wrong. Sorry, we were wrong for being fearful. We now want to do this, so let's go. And Moses said, don't do it. Don't dare go try to do this now because God is not with you. And Numbers 14 reads, nevertheless, in their presumption, and that's what we're doing, any time we try to do God's work in our own power, we're being very presumptuous. In their presumption, they went up toward the hill, high hill country, though neither Moses nor, nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Horma. When they went in their own power, they failed miserably. So whatever God's next chapter is that he's writing, if we believe it's all about our programs, our facilities, our speaking ability, our plans and structures and ingenuity, we're going to fail miserably. We cannot compete in this battle Unless we're relying on God, but when His Spirit is with us, manifesting, no power can stand against the church. But I hope you know what happened some 40 years later when these dear people came back to the same spot and were now ready to enter this beautiful future that God had for all of them. Listen, the first obstacle was Jericho. God gave them strange instructions, march around once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, march around seven times around this city. And when they, by the way, and then blow your trumpets and shout. And when they obeyed God, those walls collapsed. And scripture says they marched straight in. They were victorious because they did it in the Lord's strength. Now, this early church that we're reading about here in Acts didn't have many wise people or influential people or powerful people among them, not many noble people that you'd say, wow, they can really get the job done. But when they relied on the Spirit, that very first day, there were 3,000 baptisms. And within a few weeks, they had grown by thousands more. God was teaching them, it's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The question is, have we learned that? Do you get that in your daily life? Because I know something about you. You've got opportunities and obstacles just like they had. And God has got doors that he wants you to step through, but we've got to learn the lesson. If we're trying to do this in our own strength, we're going to fall flat. We must learn to rely on God's power. (laughs) Billy Graham is going to be 99 years old this November, 99. Wow, that's a long life, isn't it? And he is undoubtedly the greatest evangelist in terms of impact over the last 2,000 years of God's church. And when people find out about the scope of that impact, how many countries where he's been able to share the good news, how many millions of people have gathered to hear the message and how many millions have placed faith in Christ and then they finally used to hear Billy Graham speak, here was often the reaction that I would get. I don't get it. What? I, don't, I don't understand. What's, where does the... Where does the power come from? There, there are a lot more logical, a lot more intellectual, a lot more dynamic speakers out there than this. Why is it that thousands jam into football stadiums? Why is it that records are set almost everywhere it goes? Why is it that so many thousands respond to the message? And the answer is simple. It's what the old timers used to call God's anointing. There's something about this vessel God has chosen that when he stands up to present the eternal message of God, God just flows through him in such a way it is convicting and challenging. Corey Tin Boom used to use a simple but I think helpful illustration. She said, See this old glove? This old glove has no power of its own, it's practically useless by itself, but when the hand goes in the glove, this glove goes from an object that can do pretty much nothing to being able to do a lot of things. You see, it, the power is not in the glove. The power is in the hand in the glove. The glove is like the Christian A hand in the glove is like the animating, dynamic, energizing power of the Holy Spirit. And so our job is to allow God to fill us and use us for the purposes that he wants. That's the work and necessity of the Holy Spirit. But now let's consider briefly the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of scripture here But I want to read it, and then I quickly want to draw the key points that I want you to get. So go with me, please. You see, Jesus made a powerful promise in Acts 1.8. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened next chapter, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, as you read on this account of what God did, you see that the Spirit gave these believers who had no essential power of their own, their own, as the Spirit enabled them, they were able to do amazing things. From healing the sick to raising the dead as God worked through them, to sharing the gospel in languages they had never studied, to being able to make the message crystal clear. Marshall Shelley wrote, power can be used in at least two ways. It could be unleashed like an explosion, or it can be harnessed. The energy in 10 gallons of gasoline, for example, can be released explosively by dropping a lighted match in a can, or it can be channeled through the engine of a car in a controlled burn and used to transport a person 350 miles. Explosions are spectacular. The controlled burns have lasting effects. The Holy Spirit works both ways. At Pentecost, he exploded on the seed. His presence was like tongues of fire. Thousands were affected by one burst of God's power. But he also works through the church for the long haul, through worship, fellowship, and service, Christians are provided with staying power. Now, I know many wonderful, dear believers who spend most of their lives looking for an explosion. I wish, and there's nothing wrong when God does that at all. It's awesome. But I wish more believers would ask God to harness his power and direct it strategically into some meaningful areas of service and worship and discipleship. Because when that happens, when the Holy Spirit harnesses the power, energizes his people, he does what the world thinks is impossible. (laughs) Oh, there's no hope for that marriage. Those people despise each other. Don't even bother to try to help. It's doomed. That guy, he's got a brain tumor. How can someone with a brain tumor possibly have peace? Well, that person, they're terminal. Why would you pray for them? Why would you waste your time? Oh, that guy, he can never change. He's an addict, he's a loser, he's been in and out of jail, he's never going to change. But when the Holy Spirit works to do what others think is impossible, it gives credibility to our testimony. That early church was given power to witness. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses when my spirit comes on you. And that's indeed what they did. They began to share the word with power. Verse 37 reads, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This was after Peter's clear and powerful message, but it was also after all the others had gotten involved sharing with these folks who had come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Pentecost feast. (laughs) Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 reads, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Through the years, as God has grown this particular church, Grace Fellowship, I've had a few people uh, through the years kind of complain. Say, you know, I, I just don't think it's ever God's will for a church to get beyond a couple hundred people. I've had others say, you know what? I I think that just a 1,000 is big enough. I I don't really believe that God's will is for a church to grow beyond that, really. Well, those people would be very uncomfortable in this church because it started on the very first day with 3,000. And you read on in chapter 4, verse 4, and it says there were 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that When you add to that the the women, the children that would be a part of that community, you're talking about a dynamic church of over 20,000 people, and they all met in one place, the temple courts. They came together, and throughout the week, they would break up into smaller groups and meet in their homes and break bread together. Chapter 4, verse 33 says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now, I know that's a lot of Scripture. But let me just boil it down to what I want you to take away from all of that. And you can go and read it for yourself. There were two obvious effects, two overpowering effects that happened whenever the Spirit empowered these people. One... They got bolder. They got bolder. Just a short time before, they had cowered in the face of opposition. Now they're boldly testifying for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And I know one thing about the Lord's work. Whenever God is moving in his people, they become much bolder, much more willing to share their testimony, and share God's word in all the right places and at the right times. But the second thing is that people become more loving. They become bolder and they become more loving. It's like there's a magnetism about them. It becomes contagious, this compassion that God gives them. Verse 44 reads, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Are we bold? Are we loving? Let's suppose that a total stranger showed up in the capital region. And this stranger somehow went to the most influential leaders around, business leaders, politicians, Perhaps judges or people involved in the courtroom, uh, famous and well-known teachers in the area, movers and shakers of all different kinds, and they—this person were to ask, "Could you? I'm brand new here. I don't know anything. Could you please point me to a church that really, really loves people, no matter who they are? Could you point me to that church?" the next chapter that God is writing for us, the next iteration, the next season, I wonder, are we today and will we be that kind of church? Would those leaders point that person to Grace Fellowship? I'd like to believe they would But the answer to that really relies on us, doesn't it? And how much we yield to God's empowering presence and what he wants to do in us. But now let's turn the corner today. I know that's been a lot of kind of lofty stuff. It's kind of high level, and I almost apologize for that uh, because we need to start right there because we're going to get really, really practical in the coming weeks as we walk through these first six chapters, and there's going to be a lot of personal challenge and a lot of nitty-gritty stuff for us to grapple with, but we need to begin with that base. It can't be done in our power, but as you know, I'm not satisfied with that. I want to ask the how question, right? The Bible wasn't meant to fill our heads with information. It was meant to change our lives. So how can we cooperate? Let's wrap up today by talking about how we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he continues to work through us. How can we be the church next that God has in mind? Churches should always be changing appropriately. They should always be changing not the message, but they should always be changing the way they're approaching God's ministry. It's always happened throughout history with those churches that God keeps writing a great narrative with. So let me mention four things as we look back quickly at this early church. I want to just highlight four things quickly that they did that allowed God's Spirit to use them so powerfully. Number one, they were obedient. We read earlier in verse 4 of chapter 1, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. He said wait, and that's exactly what they did. They walked in obedience. Now, I want to tell you something a prerequisite to God really filling and using not just a corporate body, but to use you individually is that we walk in obedience to his word. 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God to obey his commands. So I want to say to you, if in your life today, dear friend, I'm talking out of love here. If there's any area where you know you're in disobedience to God, you must come to grips with that and yield that part of your life to God if you're wanting the next iteration of God for your life. A true believer cannot get around this. Now, if you're a phony, if you're an illegitimate child of God, if you're a, you know, Imposter, Scripture says, don't worry about it. But if you're a real child of God, you've got to grapple with this obedience issue. There's just no way around it. The church that God really uses is going to walk in obedience. Another thing these early Christians did is they lived in harmony. Verse 14 they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, hear me clearly, nothing quenches and frustrates the move of the Spirit in our midst more than bickering and division. For the Holy Spirit to make us into church next requires harmony among the leadership and the congregation. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4 as he talks about how we're united. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So let me ask you another question. Is there anyone with whom you have such a conflict and yet you've not gone to that person and at least attempted In humility, to make that right, to work that out, it's not always possible. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We can't make everyone be at peace with us. That requires two, obviously, but we need to do our part. One of the reasons we've had amazing unity throughout our history as a rule is because we really try to keep the main thing the main thing. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. Church next is going to be a harmonious church. Third, they prayed before they received power. They prayed. Verse 14 reminded us they joined together constantly in prayer. Now remember what Peter had said in Acts 2.38. He said repent and be baptized every one of you and notice the promise at the end of that verse and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hear me. Whenever any person comes in true repentance to Christ today, they are infused with the Holy Spirit. Remember how I say it all the time to you? He will forgive all your sins. He will adopt you into his family and he'll come inside of you and begin to change you from the inside out. That's just not my theology. That's Bible theology. God comes into every believer. Romans 8 9 says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't even belong to Christ. Every believer is indwelled. But just because he's resident in you doesn't mean he's president of you. Do you get it? You may be quenching the Spirit constantly. You may be in rebellion against God's Spirit's work in your life. And even though He dwells in us, we're told in Scripture to pray for filling. Jesus made this amazing statement in Luke 11. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So let me ask you a third question today as we're making it practical. As we're asking, how can we do this? How can we be church next? Do you pray every day for the filling of the Holy Spirit? I urge you to. Someone once asked the great evangelist D.L. Moody why he was constantly just praying for the filling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. Always, he was saying, God, fill me with your spirit. They said, D.L., why do you do that? He said, because I leak. I leak. And we all know what it's like to go through a depleting day and to kind of be drained at the end of it. We need to be filled with God's energizing power. I love Acts 4.31. It tells us that after the church was threatened by the local government, they met together for prayer. And look at what happened. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit And spoke the word of God boldly. I'm so encouraged because I know that every time I stand on this platform to preach God's word, I know, I just know that so many of you at all of our different locations are lifting me up in prayer. And you're saying, God, help the boy. He needs help. God, would you fill him? God, would you use this vessel? Thank you for those prayers. And I would urge you to pray that prayer for yourself every single morning. There's one final thing. They exalted Christ. To put it in different words, they knew it was not about them. It was all about Jesus. Final verses. Acts 2.22. This is Peter preaching On the day of Pentecost. Notice how this message is so Christ centered. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, being a little bit pointed here. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Can I tell you something I know about the Holy Spirit? According to John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 26, the Spirit of God does not exalt himself. Jesus said, when this comforter comes that I'm gonna send you, Holy Spirit, He is going to exalt me. He's going to point people to Christ. And when we're filled with God's spirit, we're going to be all about Jesus. So what is this church next that God wants to build? What is this next chapter, iteration, season God has for us as a church? Here's what I believe. I believe that if you were to see it today, in all of its profundity, in all the scope of what God wants to do, I think it would stagger your imagination. That's what I believe. But the only way that's going to come about is that if we truly walk in obedience, if we live in harmony, if we pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, and if we exalt Christ in every aspect of our lives. I want us to be church next. I want us to be that kind of church for God's glory. Father, help us to be like that glove. And as you energize and empower, I pray that you would make us useful for all kinds of things in this world. That we'd be able to represent you so powerfully, so attractively, that people would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Encourage us, Lord. Show us signs of what you would like to do in us and through us in these coming years. And Father, thank you for all the victories you've already won, but I thank you that you're still the author who's writing a great narrative. In Jesus' name, amen.